Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Put Cancer Behind You podcast, a series dedicated to helping cancer patients and survivors lead healthy, happy, cancer-free lives. I'm your host, Maria Barnes. My guest today is Rick Shapleski, a two-time cancer survivor who's been free of the disease for over 27 years. He's also the author of Better Dirty Than Done, a book about his amazing cancer journey and life after cancer. And Rick, you have quite a tale to tell. So thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Maria. Oh, my pleasure. Now, your story as a survivor is really unusual and very powerful. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your life before cancer? Where'd you grow up? What was your family life like? I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My sister is two years younger than me, and my brother is 14 years younger than me. And as a family, we were very into sports. We did all the little league soccer, swimming, bicycling, that sort of thing. And when I was in high school, I really leaned into sports as part of my identity and a lot of the things that I did. I wrestled, I played football, I wrestled in two state tournaments. So there's a lot of emphasis on studying sports, healthy lifestyle, that type of thing. And my parents are very Catholic. So the three of us, we all attended Catholic elementary school, middle school, and high schools. Right. So that was what it was like growing up. You had a great foundation for faith, and you also had a great foundation for having a very strong physical body. So let's start talking about your cancer story now, because you got cancer at a very young age. Tell us about that. What happened? Well, when I left high school, I went to a college, University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and this was roughly a four-hour drive from my hometown. And when I went there, I did what a lot of college freshmen probably the majority of them do, which is got into the partying scene, drinking, hanging out, that type of thing. And that was a very prevalent scene at my university. So I, we would go, go to parties, cram ourselves in basements, drink beer, and then come home. And as the temperature started to go down, I noticed that there was a lot of smoking at these parties and I didn't want my clothes to smell like smoke. So I wouldn't wear a jacket. I would walk to these parties, sometimes 15 minutes, 30 minutes, just in shirt sleeves. And as the temperatures went down, I got sick. So over the Christmas break at the end of my first semester, I developed enlarged lymph nodes in my neck. My mom took me to an urgent care doctor who determined that I had mono. And for the rest of the winter break, I sat down and just basically sat in front of the TV healing from mono. Then when I went back to college, it was business as usual, kept doing the same thing. And about eight weeks after that doctor's visit, I came back again, this time for spring break to my parents' house. And what happened then was my mom put her hands up on my neck and my neck was, I couldn't even button the top button of a polo shirt. My neck was so enlarged. Oh my and God. she said, oh my God, we've got to get you into the doctor immediately. So within an hour of doing that, I was at my pediatrician's now. He came in and looked at it, and then my uh, then he came and had a second opinion, and both of them agreed I needed to get a biopsy. This was at age 19 in 1994, and I didn't even know what a biopsy was. Sure. I thought a biopsy was not an exploratory or investigative procedure. I thought that was the entire thing. So the day after this doctor's visit, I had the biopsy. They cut a piece of lymph node out of my neck. 
And a couple days later, I went back to school. So I had a huge bandage on my neck and people were asking me, what, what happened to you? And I would say, I had a biopsy. <laughs> so like it was a cool <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. Like it, like I won a fight or something like, yeah, I had a, this is great. Then about a week after that, that happened, my parents made that four hour drive middle of the week, a Tuesday night. I was in my room. I was microwaving dinner and they knocked on my door and I didn't know they were coming. And I opened the door and the exact words they said were, son, you have Hodgkin's disease. That's what they told me. Right. And so I did what every 19 year old with Hodgkin's disease would do. I kicked them out. I said, oh, you guys got to get out of here. <laughs> Incredible. And, and, and they left. And that's, that's how it all started. Wow. Okay. So at that point, you didn't know that you had cancer. So what happened next? And how did you find out Hodgkin's disease is Hodgkin's lymphoma, a cancer? So the first thing I did was I called the smartest person I knew at the university, a friend of mine, and her name is Jennifer. And we went to the library and at this liberal arts college, they didn't have a lot of, you know, again, 1994, there was no internet. There was no online research. It was purely what you could find in print material. And so we asked the desk where we could find out about Hodgkin's disease. And so he pointed us towards some medical journals, which yielded no information. And then we were going through books from like the seventies encyclopedias way in the back of the reference section. We're looking up the eight in, you know, in the H volume of encyclopedias for this, nothing there at all. And after a good couple hours, we we walked out of there knowing nothing. Yeah. So what ended up happening from this point was I took a week off of school. I went back for PET scans and CT scans, blood work, all those types of things, the diagnostic. And they, the doctor determined that I had stage 2B Hodgkin's disease in my uh, neck and chest. And the way they treated it at this point was exclusively with radiation which was great news for me because there was a hospital directly next to my campus. In fact, that hospital and the dorms that I, that I lived in shared a grass field where we would play football and, and sports for fun, like in the afternoons. So when you started this, did you know how many sessions of radiation you were going to have and what the side effects could be? Yeah, I knew it was 48 total radiations, 24 to the upper mantle and 24 to the lower mantle. Wow. And But the side effects, especially to a, a 19-year-old, didn't seem like it was going to be a big thing. I had no doubt that at the end of my treatments, I was going to be fine. So in, this is all in my mind at this point. <laughs> As I began getting upper mantle radiation, I had some weird symptoms. I started to lose my voice. And then the beam of the radiation went through the back of my neck, which burnt some hair out of the back of my head. So I noticed hair falling out and I was pulling out clumps of hair from the back of my head thinking, what in the world is this? And I, I didn't understand why this was happening. So I would wake up in the morning. I would do a shot of prescribed codeine that the doctor gave to me for my vocal cords. I would then go to class. And then in the afternoon, I would walk by myself over to the hospital. I would get my radiation treatment. And as it got worse, I would come back to the dorms and throw up. And then I would study. And then I'd go to bed and repeat that cycle the next day. 
And other than my friend who I took to the library that I told I had Hodgkin's disease and my boss, zero other people knew. I did all this entirely by myself. I didn't want anybody to know. I didn't want to stick out. And I also didn't think it was that big of a thing. I just thought, all right, I'm going to the hospital to get treated. I understand that you didn't think it was a big thing, but how did you find out how intense it really was? It was about six weeks into my treatment and the doctor was running late that day and said, hey, why don't you take a seat in this waiting room right next to the main room? It was a room I'd never been in before. And there were some magazines on the shelf in there. So I grabbed one and I'm thumbing through the magazine. And then there was a page that said, list of blood cancers, boom, 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 Hodgkin's disease. And I, I said, I have cancer? I had no idea. I did not know I had cancer until I was six weeks deep into treatment. I was an honor student. I was 19 years old. I saw oncologists and hematologists. I had dozens of scans. I saw multiple doctors. My mom was an oncology nurse. I did not connect the dots that this was a cancer. And nobody ever said, Rick, you have cancer. They said, Rick, you have Hodgkin's disease. Right. And that was a point in time where I was like, oh my God, this is a big deal. Yeah, kind of. That, then I really became scared. Right. And so, yeah. So I called my mom that immediately after that treatment, I called my mom and I go, I've got terrible news. And she goes, what is, what happened? I said, I have cancer. And she says, I know, I know that. I said, well, why, why didn't you tell me that? Well, I thought you knew. And we, it was a total miscommunication that I went through this for six weeks. But now the good news was that the radiation was shrinking my tumor considerably and appeared to be working. So I kept fighting through it. I completed those 48 radiation treatments after the semester completed in the summer. And at the end of those treatments, I went back home to my parents' house and did what everybody who has radiation does. I slept for like 16 to 20 hours a day and, and you know, complete exhaustion to recover. And that was the first time that, that I had cancer. But you're a two-time cancer survivor. So what happened? When did you find out that it had come back? And how old were you? So when I went through it the first time, I was 19. And 18 months later, I was at the end of my, my 20th year, which was important because I was closing in on the coveted 21, which is a legal drinking age. <laughs> I, started to, <laughs> I started to experience more symptoms. And this time, instead of having the, the original symptoms I had were classic cancer stage B symptoms, like the big one was night sweats and my entire bed was soaked. But the second time I didn't have anything overt like that. Instead, it was my back was sore. And I went back to the hospital in the middle of the night after several sleepless nights with back pain. And I said, I can't sleep. And there's something really wrong here. And the, I went to the ER and the ER doctor determined, well, you've got a sore back from your mattress. Here's some muscle relaxers and sent me back. Incredible. Well, I took those and that didn't really do it. Right. And I, you know, I told my mom and the doctor wanted to do an x-ray and, and they did. And then that turned into a CT scan guided needle biopsy of my back. And it, at the site where I had my bone marrow uh, biopsy as part of my workup, I now had Hodgkin's disease in my back in the bone, which is unusual. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with this roughly 
around Thanksgiving. So I had about five weeks to go in the semester. The doctor agreed to let me complete the semester. And I knew this was serious this time. I knew it was cancer. Right. So what I decided to do that final semester was I studied relentlessly. I wanted to go out with as high a grades as possible because if if I was going to die from this, I wanted people to at least look at my college transcript and say, this guy was worthy of a college degree. This guy could have done it. And that's what really motivated me. I was so angry that I was not going to graduate. So that final semester, I studied those four weeks. I studied so hard and got a 4.0. Only time I ever did that. I just want to ask you another question because there you are really in the prime of your young life, right? Most guys your age were really physically fit. Everyone's very focused on the body in college. What was it like going through cancer at that age? And how did you view your body? At that age, the one thing I wanted to do was fit in. And being so athletic, my body was always in great shape. I looked decent. I had muscles and everything. And I felt good too. All those things combined to to build your body image. When I had radiation, I lost 50 pounds and look on my frame, I looked like a skeleton. And I never could, I, I could never put that muscle back on proportionate to where I was. When I was diagnosed the second time and I started chemotherapy, I'm not sure if you experienced this, Maria, but I had really bad bloating from chemo. I I was at my heaviest weight. I looked in the mirror and as a young person, I I admonished myself and felt humiliated. And I looked so big. And as somebody whose body was able to do athletic events, wrestling, football, running, whatever, and now look at myself, I was so angry. And I, I remember I took my shirt off. I had a Hickman catheter sticking out of my chest. I examined my belly from the front and from the sides. And I was just beating myself up relentlessly. And then I heard a voice that said something like, this is not the time to be upset about your body. Right. Your body is doing everything it can to heal itself. You can work on what you look like later, but your body needs to do this now to heal. And I thought of my body then as both the the combatant and the arena. It's the fight of the fight of my life was occurring inside of it and my body was doing everything it could with those drugs inside to heal and where that voice came from probably the heavens because at that point i let everything go um i thought you know what i don't care what i look like at all and that body image has stuck with me that i'm more concerned about what my body can do as an athlete, as a dad, as somebody who takes care of my own property, different stuff. I'm proud that I'm able to do some of those large athletic events that I covered in the book, like the Boston Marathon and big swims. But I'm also very proud that as a dad, I never let myself go. And I was able to be a coach and take care of my son and keep up with him, even when he got older. And that to me is more important than what I look like. It's what output I can get from my body and what can I do. Right. And I think that's a huge learning that I would hope others you know, can take away from this story. Yeah, you pretty much have to have faith that things will improve. And you're not always going to be where you are at that point in time, because that's the low point of, of anyone's life. If you've ever been a cancer patient, you would know what we're talking about. So 
the whole experience that you went through was extremely brutal, going through it twice with all that radiation and especially where the cancer was located. So what do you attribute your complete remission? I mean, it's so unusual because people who've had cancer twice don't usually survive, but you went into complete remission. You've been in remission now over 25 years. How did that impact how you chose to live your life after that? And how have you focused your energy so that you remain cancer-free? I mean, it's just a phenomenal story. And what did you learn from it? What do you want people to know about how you walked away from cancer? How were you different? I, I don't think of myself as different or comparative to others. I, I just think of myself as this is my life's philosophy, which is time is short. We're spending time in these physical bodies. We have a very tactile experience, a very sensory experience. It's taken me over 20 years to get to this point. The first thing you do as a cancer survivor is the doctor, after months, weeks, years of fighting, tells you you're cancer-free and you walk out of there, and the first thing I thought was, what was this? Why me? Why did this happen to me? Why did I need to go through this? And you question a lot of your experience. And then, of course, when you have to go back for a scan three months later, you're scared. They call this scanxiety these days. Back then, I just called it scared fear. So you go back and you'd be worried that the scan, it's back. I'm going to be back on the drip, put that catheter back in my chest. Here we go. And you're back at it, right? For me, there was a turning point. Every time I got sick with the sniffles, I would feel like I'm sick again. Like, oh shit, it's back. But really it's, I just have a cold. The turning point for me was, I just wanted to say enough is enough that I'm done feeling this way. And I saw Lance Armstrong. He was diagnosed in 96. That was the year that I was cancer-free. So for two years, I didn't have a role model or somebody to look to. You know, I Jim Valvano's Don't Give Up, Don't Ever Give Up came up in my mind a lot. And Mario Lemieux for the Pittsburgh Penguins was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease and played in the same year. Hockey, professional hockey. Like, I don't understand how somebody could do that. But it wasn't a big deal. It was a footnote. And it wasn't until Lance Armstrong started biking and really started talking about it that I was inspired. So then what really clicked for me was leaning back into athletics and sports and my body and regaining what I lost. And that for me, rebalancing the scale was critical. I had lost all this physical talent athleticism, whatever you want to call it. And I was hell bent to build it back and to even up the score. And so four years to the date after my cancer anniversary in 1996, in the year 2000, I climbed Mount Rainier. I know that's just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really is amazing. And, and all of these feats of athleticism are detailed in your book, but let's go ahead and tell everyone, what have you done in terms of getting over cancer, really putting it behind you on a physical standpoint, because it's phenomenal. It was, I think the good fuel is, you know, you go through a disease like this and I think you can go in a couple different spirals. One is the depression spiral. And I spent a lot of time there. And the other one is the questioning spiral of what if and why. You can spend a lot of time 
perusing those questions, but those are both dead end questions. There is no what if. What if it didn't happen? I don't know. Who cares? I mean, there is no uh, there is no alternative reality that I can visit or peruse at that point. And why did it happen? There's no satisfactory answer that you can come up with. So the only reason I can answer why is just because this is it. It happened. It's time to just turn the page on those questions and move on. So then I was mad. I was angry. Why? You know, it happened to me. Look at what I'm stuck with now. You know, this body that doesn't work like it used to. And and so I started leaning back into sports, which is my safe zone or my, you know, a familiar place for me. And my advice to anyone who's overcoming cancer is not you need to go out and go nuts on huge events or anything like this. I would say just start walking. Walk, get up in the morning and walk around your block. Take half a mile or a mile and go for a walk and just start working your way back. Right. And eventually these things, these small little steps start turning into bigger life-changing situations. Who knows which direction that can go. Right. The Mount Rainier thing for me started on a business trip about a year after I was um, cancer-free. I had an internship and a business trip took me to Seattle and for fun, I decided to go drive up Mount Rainier and look out the binoculars or whatever the observation platform was. And I looked out there and I saw people walking on it or climbing it. And I, th- I said to myself that I'm doing this. And I could not walk up one flight of stairs at my worst. So I said to myself, if I can make it to the top of this thing, that would be a great balancing of, you know, you were at your lowest and this would be your highest. So I set my sights on training for that. And I put a good two years into it, building myself back, running, lifting weights, walking up and down huge hills with a backpack, just silly stuff. And I love training. And I went to Mount Rainier with a guide service and I made it. And it was like nothing else. It was just that, that was just one way I had to do that to put cancer in the rearview mirror. And that's amazing. And that's just the beginning. What did you do next? So I had some life changes. I got married. We moved to California and I I lived in Sacramento for a decade. And that's a very healthy place to live. And I got into the running culture. And then when I, I lost a little bit of weight there, the funny story that I tell here, Maria, is my wife and I would go from California to Wisconsin for holidays. And so over Christmas, we'd spend a week and a half to two weeks in Wisconsin. And when we were there, we would eat everything in sight, cookies, chips. We would go completely nuts. We had, I I wouldn't say I have the greatest diet, but when during those two weeks, we showed no reservation. It was shortly after that one of those trips that we were back in Sacramento and she asked me, can you pick up something at the grocery store? I said, sure. When I was getting out of my car, I split my pants (laughs) (laughs) and I had to go in the store and I have like a pair of khakis on and they're like split. So I tied my jacket around my waist. I went in the store and I bought our dinner, whatever we wanted. I went home and I showed her and she's laughing. And I realized, dude, you've got a problem here. You, you got to get yourself back in shape again. And so that's what I did that night. I went out for a short run and it's so funny how these life's journeys unfold. It starts with you splitting your pants and then you decide to go for a run. And I mean, I must have run half a mile at the most, wasn't far. 
And then pretty soon I enjoyed that space. I enjoyed running. I enjoyed putting on my music and listening to songs alone that nobody in my household would want to hear. And that became my time. And my half mile runs became a mile, the two miles, three miles, four, seven miles, 10 miles. And I just enjoyed the time. And next thing you know, I meet some people at work who are into training for marathons and they kind of took me under their wing. And that's where I started training for marathons. And my company, I work for Hewlett Packard. My company in the mid 2000s sponsored the Boston Marathon. So they had entries to the Boston Marathon. And I finished the local marathon in Sacramento. And I put my name in the hat for the lottery to get into Boston. And they chose me and I, I was in. And so I'm like, wow, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. And, and that's exactly what I did. I, I trained for it. I wore a, a Livestrong shirt. I put on my 2X cancer survivor on my back so people could see what I was doing. And it felt great. It felt so good. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm sure no one really connected the dots, but it just to be able to turn that corner and that dream, I, I, you know, when you're picking up a pork roast at a grocery store and you blow your pants out, the last thing you're thinking about is running the Boston Marathon. And <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> it's amazing. How many years had you been in remission at that point when you actually ran, when you completed the Boston Marathon? So I was 13 years in remission. I, I ran the race in April, 2009. And by that time, California for me really was a game changer because of the the healthy environment, the good weather, the ability to work out outside all the time. That really helped me get my body back into shape. Right. But you didn't stop there. So you've done many other things and you've climbed other mountains. And But let's talk about Alcatraz. Let's talk about your amazing swimming feats. I mean, it's, it blows my mind. This was another split the pants type thing. So I'd been contemplating getting in the pool. I swam competitively when I was in elementary school. Like we're talking third grade, fifth grade. And I was not any good, but I, I swam for a swim team. And so I had kind of that swimming DNA. So I've been thinking about, well, what if I just start swimming? I don't know why I thought that. And a neighbor of mine seeing me run all the time after the splitting pants moment came up to me and said, I want to do a triathlon relay. I want to do the biking, but I need a runner. You can be that guy. And then we need a swimmer. And I said, well, I used to swim and I've been thinking about doing it. And my wife is a very good runner. We could be a co-ed team and she could be the runner. And he's like, let's do this. And that's how the journey started. So I went in the pool and I think I swam three or four laps. And I'm like, what did I sign up for here? And eventually that turned into 20 laps into 40 laps. And it became another one of those peaceful, transcendent moments where you're by yourself. And when you think about cancer as a survivor, what I would do in these moments is I would think about one word or one thing and just keep swimming and just have this one thing in my mind. And I was processing it, I guess, and getting rid of it. It felt so good. I would swim I would carry this heavy thing in my mind. And by the end of the, the workout, 
oh, wow, I just did 50 laps. You disconnect from the difficulty of the swimming and you're focusing on the mental piece. Before you know it, you're starting to get in good shape. And that's where I was. So now I was excited. I was like, I'm going to sign up for some stuff. I signed up for this big swim from Alcatraz. And then the day of that triathlon came and it was really cold. It was Folsom Lake. The water in that lake comes off of snow melt in the Sierra Mountains. And so it's freaking cold. So it was 48 degrees. Whoa. I almost drowned. Yeah. <laughs> I almost yeah. drowned. I had a kayak come up to me like, are you going to make it? I mean, it was ugly. And I had already signed up to like swim Alcatraz like six months later because I was feeling so good in the 80 degree pool. But the 48 degree cold water was a real slap in the face. <laughs> So I came home and I was totally dejected and I didn't know what to do. And I thought, you know what, just go jump back in that pool. That was fun. So I went back in the pool and I felt good again. And then I found a swim club in San Francisco. It was about an hour and a half drive to the bay from where I lived. I decided I'm just going to jump in the San Francisco Bay with this team and just see how it goes. So fortunately, the, the day that I did that, it was warmer. The water was beautiful. I swam around a mile and I felt great. And then that's really where things got rolling from there. So how many times have you swum from Alcatraz back to San Francisco? 12, 12 times. That's just amazing. There are people out there who've done it far, far more than this. I, I really did it as a hobby. And what I remember going down there one morning for a big, for one of these team swims. And I saw a race called Swim Around the Rock happening. And it's a race where you start on the beach of San Francisco, you swim to Alcatraz and you swim around it, then you come back. So it's around somewhere between three and four miles, depending on how, how good your course is, right? How, how good your, your own personal navigation is. So I got to know the coach. His name was Pedro. And I'm sitting waiting. For, he comes by and I said, hey, Coach Pedro. And he goes, hey, Rick, how you doing? We start talking. And he goes, do you want to meet an, an Olympian? said, yeah, that'd be cool. So he introduces me to this 15-year-old girl and he explains she's there to do the test or the qualification swim for that swim around the rock, the big one that I saw the previous year. And I said, wow, hey, nice to meet you. Good luck. And he says, Rick, do you want to swim with her? We have one kayak. There's plenty of room. And if you do it, if you've been swimming, right? Yeah. Well, why don't you give this a chance? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, if, if anything goes wrong, just swim to shore and you're fine. And I said, I'm not sure. And then this Olympian's mom points to me and puts her, like touches me on the chest and says, you're doing it like that. Like that. And like with this, like, like <laughs> fire in her face, like you're doing it. And I said, all right, I'm doing it. So <laughs> one kayak, two swimmers, and a portion of this is going to be exposed in San Francisco Bay. So I start swimming. I, oh, I put all my stuff on. I don't really even warm up. The Olympian and I jump in the water at the same time. I take about 10 strokes and look up, and she is way in front of me. I mean, like 50 to 100 yards beyond me. I'm like, how is somebody moving that fast? And... It's like she jumped in a boat or something, but I swam. I was by myself out there. I completed a three mile test swim and I qualified. And then I was originally going to swim with the swim team as I 
ended my qualification swim and swam back to the beach. That swim team had already gone out and back and did their swim. And so they were all clapping for me and, and like pat me on the back and stuff. I'm like, wow, I can't believe it. And so then two months later, I, I did that swim. I started on the beach. There were 34, 35 other people. I, I completed it and I took like 31st out of 35. So I didn't finish last. You finished. Well, I think that so much of what you've done really pushed you physically and certainly comes from a will that is really indomitable. I mean, not many people have that kind of willpower to to do that as a comeback from cancer. I mean, it's amazing. And you do detail a lot of this and more in your book. So let's talk about your book because I know that you wrote it for your son, but what did you want your son to take away from your book and why did you decide to then publish it? Writing a book about cancer, about my experience, has always been a goal of mine since I went through it. The story of me misinterpreting a medical scan and worried that I was going to die, and that was roughly over a week, became the predominant theme of the book and something where I wanted to explore the emotions, the the hopelessness, the pain, the anger, the depression of having cancer. I wanted that story to explore all those topics. But then that's a heavy book. I don't want to leave somebody with, you know, a punch in the gut without, you know, some type of a rebound. So what I ended up doing was the literary device I used was that was that story spans the book using fantasy as the device. Me thinking about all these other things that I've really done and interspersing those with childhood memories running Boston Marathon, swimming from Alcatraz, climbing mountains and other things. I wanted that to be the triumph, but I wrote it in such a way that the reader doesn't know if I make it. And then only at the end, you realize I do make it and the epilogue reveals, hey, I really did all that stuff. It's amazing because if they didn't know the story, they would assume that it was just a fantasy, that you were just dreaming that you wanted to do these things, but you actually went out and did them which is pretty awesome. This is a funny story. I originally called this an attic book. I wrote the book. I printed it on just regular printer paper. I took the manuscript, stapled it, and I put it in my attic. And it was an attic book. And my vision was my son was going to come into the attic someday. And I was going to be long after I'm gone. And he was going to pull out this book and realize, wow, what a treasure. I found something great here, like a holy grail. He holds the manuscript over his head, and this is amazing. And so I told my friend this, and she says, that is the stupidest idea I have ever heard. <laughs> I go, what are you talking about? She goes, no one's going to find that. She goes, you've helped so many people. You should try to get this book out there to help others. And hearing that from her was what put me over the top was, boy, I, if my writing, if this book can help other people. That's wonderful. You publish the book, but you're doing more than that. You're also a motivational speaker. And so what do you want the takeaways to be for the people who come to listen to your story? How would you like to help others by speaking to people about your experiences and how you've led your life since overcoming cancer twice? One thing I want to give to people is my story. The takeaway from this story, if you've not experienced cancer or some situation where you feel like you're going to prematurely die, that I've got more to do. I've got more things left that I need to get to on my 
proverbial life's bucket list that I haven't got to. If you're in that position, I want people to take away four things. The first thing is, what do you have left to do? What accomplishments do you have to achieve? What places do you have to travel to? What do you have to see? What do you have to complete? What do you have to acquire? What things do you have left to do that, for whatever reason, you haven't gotten around to those? And think about those in terms of your strengths. If you want to run a marathon, let's face it, time closes the door on that goal for a lot of people. And one thing I want to communicate is these other things on your to-do list. If you want to fly to a foreign country, maybe your body's not going to be able to withstand a flight in the future. Do it now. Get on that and prioritize those things. The second thing I want to tell people, what do you have left to say? I love you. I forgive you. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. Everybody has something they need to say to someone else. What are those things? What are those things you need to say? And the third piece is, what do you have left to repair? The human experience is intrinsically imperfect. We make mistakes. We screw stuff up. We break things. What do you need to repair? Is it something physical you need to repair? Is it a relationship you need to repair that you're too proud to have called and reached back to, to fix? What do you need to fix? What do you need to repair? And the final thing is, what do you want to leave behind? What do you need to get off your chest? What do you want people to know about you that you've never told anyone? Is there something you could write down and leave behind as, this was my essence? When you tell people about me in the future, this is, this is what I want to be known as. Is there something physical you want to leave behind? For example, do you have a collection or an heirloom or something along those lines or something sentimental? You know, what do you want to leave behind? Those are the things where when you get cancer, it closes the door on that stuff. And cancer kills your time. It, it eliminates your time, which is a finite free resource and you have free will. When I do motivational speaking, I talk about those things. What are the things you want to do? The things you want to say? What do you want to repair? And what do you want to leave behind? That's the core of what I like to do. That's wonderful. You know, really, time is of the essence, whether you've had cancer or not, but in particular, if you've had cancer, because we've kicked it. We're staying high vibe to, to stay healthy. But, you know, it's always in the back of your mind that I need to do my best to stay healthy because you never know if the shoe's going to drop again. You really don't know. We live our lives with great faith, yeah. but it does prompt you to try and be your better self all the time, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think faith is a very big component. There's no guarantee. The faith in a higher power, the faith in that the work you put in to heal has worked. And then the work you put into yourself is using the gift that you've received from that experience and dedicating all of those workouts back to whatever higher power has granted you the ability to continue on. Right. I think about that every workout, every single one. I do a meditation at the end of every workout, just briefly, 30 seconds, and I express gratitude for just being able to make it to the end and, and to give back. Yeah. It's fabulous. 
Hey, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story. It is amazing. If people want to contact you, how can they do that? What is the best way, say somebody wants to learn more about your story? You can find me at rickchapleski.com. And if you can't spell that, don't fear. Look in the notes to the podcast and you can see exactly how to spell that. That's exactly right. And your book, how can people get your book? Oh, you can find the book on rickchapleski.com. That's a print copy. If you buy it there and mention uh, the podcast, the Put Cancer Behind You podcast, I'll sign it for you and put a little note in there. If you're an audiobook fan, you can find my audiobook on Spotify, on Audible, on Chirp, on all sorts of different platforms where you get audiobooks. And if you're an ebook lover, it's on Kindle. So a lot of different formats uh, ready, ready for you. Right. And it's out in paperback on Amazon as well, because I bought it. <laughs> it was wonderful. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. <laughs> well, Rick, thank you so much. I hope to have you back at some point. We'll talk about where you go as a motivational speaker and just wishing you the best. You are one phenomenal guy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maria. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Put Cancer Behind You with Maria Barnes so you won't miss a single episode. We hope you'll follow our program on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite pod platforms. And be sure to visit us at mariabarnes.net, on Facebook at Put Cancer Behind You, on Twitter at PCBY01, or on Instagram at mariabarnespcby. Also, you can help us grow our audience by leaving a thoughtful review. Remember, if you or someone you know is in need of cancer coaching, Maria is here to help. We'll see you next time. Copyright 2024, Maria Barnes, LLC, all rights reserved.